Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all of the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR daily brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your favorite podcast app. And we're not stopping there, as we'll soon be announcing additional programming and content partnerships to make membership an absolute must-have. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MAY2022 at checkout to gain access to all of our exclusive benefits for just $5 per month. Thank you for your support. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Also in New York City, I can tell by her background, is our friend Lori Garrett, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and expert on many things health-related. How are you doing today, Lori? Very well. And in Washington, D.C., of course, because it's that time of the week, we have with us Dr. Kavita Patel, who is a former senior Obama White House official, is a practicing physician and uh, also knows a lot about a lot of different things. How are you doing, Kavita? Very well. Excited for today's conversation. Well, I am too, because it's coming into the Memorial Day weekend. And frankly, I'm sort of in a vacation mode in my brain. And I know that whenever both of you guys are together, I don't have to do anything. I can just say a word and then you guys can respond to it. Unfortunately, There's a lot to cover in the half hour we've got, and we've got a second half hour. This is a special episode, so we're going to do a half an hour with the two of you talking about a bunch of health-related issues. Second half hour is going to be with a former assistant attorney general talking about guns, obviously following the shooting in Uvalde. I want to talk to you guys about that. And it will all be available to the public. We're not going to make any portion of it only available to members. So Those of you who are not members can see what you're missing when you miss out on the rest of the episode. In any event, there are a lot of things to talk about, but I don't think I can start anywhere without this gun issue. And many people view America's gun pathology as a public health issue. And so let me start with you, Lori, and your reaction to what happened in Uvalde. Well, beyond the obvious sorrow and horror I think the thing that's really striking is that this is now, by my count, the fourth time we have a teenager who's classified in his respective state as an adult getting possession of powerful firearms and committing mass atrocious homicide, where it 
there is no psychiatric history to speak of. There is no all the red flag warnings that Republicans typically say should be the issue rather than controlling the guns themselves are not there. And we're left, you know, with a horrible nightmare vision. What could have happened? And I think, uh, you know, if we were to interpret this from a strictly public health point of view and say, how do you prevent things like this from happening? From a public health point of view, you go straight to what is the vector responsible for the spread of the ideas and the vector responsible for the murders. And so you come down to social media as the idea vector and military style weaponry as the vector of death, both of which should be subject to controls and to intervention. I'm really fed up with how the dialogue goes every single time. After every single one of these incidents, the same crap gets said by all sides. The liberals say the same crap, the conservatives and the reactionaries say their crap. And, you know, the bottom line is I would really like a conversation where those who claim that the answer is more guns and that teachers should have guns and there'd be cops in the, cl- in the classroom and so on to answer a few key questions. One is you're opposed to masks on kids and you want the schools reopened on the COVID side because you say that having masks and, or having kids forced to be educated at home creates an unjust burden of psychological damage to the children. What kind of psychological damage do you think the threat of being shot to death or watching your classmates or your teacher shot to death imposes? And how do, can you imagine that putting police in the classroom isn't a, an even worse psychological burden? And the second is, you say you want to arm the teachers. So how exactly would this work? Is the teacher responsible for the weapon or is the school? Does the school carry responsibility for ensuring proper training by the teacher and proper psychological profile to make sure the teacher isn't going to be a killer? And then where is that weapon stored and where is the ammo stored and how do you prevent kids from having access to said weapon? And then given that most of these mass murders take place in a matter of seconds, how does that teacher assess the situation, reach a risk determination, find their weapon, unlock said weapon, load said weapon, and shoot the assailant all in, what, 13, 14 seconds? It's, it's insane. And on the face of it, in every single imaginable way, it's insane. And yet I don't hear them getting called on it in real detail, in the kind of detail that would, would disclose the insanity of the assumptions. I strongly agree with everything that you said, and I would encourage people, if you're interested, there are a lot of people who've written about guns as a public health problem, and there's a lot of data on it. And uh, for example, I was looking at some data yesterday from the Chan School at Harvard, which is the public health school at Harvard. And the data is very interesting because it refutes a lot of the bullshit that's out there, including you should have guns for uh, self-defense. Almost nobody uses guns for self-defense. And the guns that are bought for self-defense tend to cause damage for other reasons. Suicide. Suicide, Accidents, and so forth. And each of the arguments that Laurie is talking about are either refuted, in the case of the pro-gun arguments, or supported in terms of the data, such as looking at the use of AR-15s and other assault-style weapons and the enormous damage that they do. The result is roughly the same number of deaths each year as the flu causes. and and a pandemic that is, or an epidemic that's unique to the United States and so requires a special kind of analysis because it doesn't happen anywhere else. Well, one, uh, one final little sentence I would add is another argument all, we always hear from the Ted Cruz types is you need to have 
trained security personnel with weaponry on sites to protect them. Well, let's recall that in Buffalo, there was a trained former police officer, award-winning police officer working as a security guard in that shopping center in Topps Market. And he did fire on the assailant, but the assailant was wearing body armor and killed him without himself dying from the bullets fired by the security guard. So there's another one, Ted Cruz, shot down. Kavita. The only thing I'll add, both of you made points that I want to consider is actually something of an interesting perspective. I'm part of this like large physician on you know social media community that's not public. And it's very interesting to see physicians basically along political lines breaking into for the more conservative or physicians that admit to vote Republican and even independent they all think this is the mental health crisis, right? So you have what you and Lori nicely outlined, which is, I think, what most you know legislators and the Ted Cruz types. But then you also have some of those same like congressmen and senators that basically say, well, this is really a mental health problem. Look, all of these individuals were mentally ill, starting with Columbine from kind of my memory of that vernacular, but probably before that. And, and interestingly enough, physicians who align kind of admit to vote Democratic absolutely kind of abhor that like introduction. And it's, it's enough that it just throws so much. And on top of that, also, you saw immediately after the shooting and kind of things became public, that, you know, the immediate kind of pouncing of all the conspiracy theories, which honestly, David, I don't know why I'm shocked each time to hear about, you know, a pizza making porn ring, a child sex trafficking ring. But in this case, a CIA-led attack. I mean, I, I don't know why I am so stunned, but those things do have traction. And unlike Columbine, even Parkland, the sophistication for the craziness to take traction and quote, go viral is, is beyond comprehension. And that frankly concerns me as well. Yeah. I mean, Paul Gosar, who's uh, one of our distinguished yeah, members very. of Congress, immediately said that it was a leftist trans illegal immigrant who com- committed the crime, even though the, the person shows no evidence of being any of those things, and I think was born in North Dakota. But having said all of that, I think you bring up a good point on mental health, and I'd like to devote a minute or two more to this to get Lori's reaction, because the people do bring that up. The same people, by the way, who have cut all funding for mental health care don't provide any funding for mental health care going forward. And if you said, fine, let's do a mental health profile before you are able to buy your gun, would loudly object. We're in an odd moment, David, where on the one hand, you have a kind of right-wing libertarianism that has infused the minds of members of Congress and of the political imagination of both right and left across America. And, uh, On the other hand, you have a right-wing agenda that calls for greater intrusion into personal privacy. So, of course, the abortion decision throws out Griswold and says, we have a right to know what you're doing with your body, all women of reproductive age in the, the United States of America and associated territories. And on the other hand, you know, they don't want you to tell them to wear a mask. Well, You can't imagine a way that you could anticipate that an 18-year-old, a 17-year-old, or frankly, a 25-year-old had a psychological profile that would lead to a massacre of children, you know, based on any advanced intervention or uh, psychological analysis that we can think of. 
There's no way without actually going into people's lives in an incredibly intrusive manner that you could anticipate, you know, who is going to open fire in Connecticut, who's going to open fire in Texas, who's going to open fire anywhere. So this notion that, no, we shouldn't control access to the weapons, we should control the brains and know the brains and the mindfulness of literally several hundred million human beings, that's completely absurd. Absolutely on the face of it, 100% absurd. Yeah, yeah. And, and Kavita, you know, furthermore, in every other country in the world, which presumably also has the same kind of mental health issues, this doesn't happen. So it isn't the mental exactly. health. Yes, it's some that's other right. factor. And the other factor is that there are 320 million guns in the United States, that, you know, and even more disturbing, 3% of Americans own 200 million guns. There are 10 million Americans who own, on average, 20 guns each. Now, if you ever wanted a sign of mental illness to me, that might be, you know, a big flag. Kavita, you're from Texas. And this yeah. is a Texas thing. And, you know, Texas laws, you know, I mean, the governor of Texas was complaining Texans weren't buying guns fast enough. The governor of Texas pushed through a law that allows you to carry a weapon anywhere you want for no reason. Is there a particular pathology in Texas? I mean, I, I think that there's an attempt to counter that pathology. You saw Beto O'Rourke's nice photobombing of, yeah, of that, Abbott. They oh. flipped out. Yeah, well, yes. And you saw the Texas Rangers that flooded the stage. And I thought, oh my God, you think this guy is going to like hurt the governor? You know, just really? <laughs> former presidential, former senatorial candidate, really? But no, I so I grew up actually, so Uvalde is uh, 80 miles west of San Antonio, but I grew up kind of halfway between. So I've been to Uvalde, I've seen a bunch of, seen that elementary school. And I have a friend whose niece was actually, she's one of the critical patients that's at the San Antonio hospital because four people had to be transferred for capacity issues in the Memorial Hospital in Uvalde. So I'm kind of actively, honestly, I wanted to actually fly there because my family's still in San Antonio. And then I thought, well, well, what am I going to do? And so I actually think I'll fly when the media leaves, which might, you know, that's the other problem. My, it was, she was my college roommate. She said, the cameras are here now and people care now. She's like, they're not going to care in a week. And she's right. I mean, I actually literally said to her, you're right. We're going to move on to some other news cycle. And this is just one of 47 school shootings in X numbers of years. And so I'm incredibly I don't know, David, I, I will say that the conversation we had last week on this very podcast exactly seven days ago gave me a little bit of hope. But I then listened to Mehdi Hassan and Mary Trump have a conversation and it took away all my hope because basically Democrats are cowards. We can't do the right thing even when we want to. And this is a great use case exemplar of that. It was all reproductive justice, voting rights, gun you know, control, whatever you want to call it. And I'm so I'm left with that cynicism that I just don't know how to counter. I'm going to posit another vector for you, and that's related to what you said. And the vector is right wing politics. Right wing politics caused people not to wear masks, not to get vaccinated, and hundreds of thousands of people died as a consequence of it. Right wing politics promote this gun culture, which leads to 30,000, 40,000 deaths a year in the United States and tens of thousands of more severe injuries. 
not to mention the mental health consequence of every little kid in America watching TV shows or running drills where they are doing active shooter drills and living in anxiety about going to school, which is a real thing. And of course, right-wing politics is trying to take away women's rights to control their own bodies, which is going to lead to deaths. It's going to lead to poverty. It's going to lead to children who are not taken care of well, who have other kind of secondary health care benefits. You know, I'm not politicizing it. I'm saying from an analytical perspective, public health perspective, these politics are pernicious and dangerous. You may disagree, but I'll give you a chance to respond. I saw that Alex Jones, who fits your box perfectly, wasted not a second to claim that monkeypox was in the COVID vaccine and that this was all some plot by Bill Gates or George Soros or fill in the box to poison and spread yet another disease across America. Completely asinine claims. We've seen a whole raft of conspiracy theories related to monkeypox emerge almost immediately. And because the Trump administration politicized the origins of COVID itself, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, claiming that, you know, it either was created by the Chinese government itself or that there was a cover-up in China of a collaborative program that Tony Fauci ran that, you know, made the virus, et cetera. One way or another, the origin story has become completely and obscenely politicized. And now uh, the Chinese government has issued a claim out of its Ministry of Foreign Affairs that monkeypox was made at Fort Detrick or by the CIA, fill in the blank, and is an American-made virus to poison the world. All of this, whatever side is screaming, lying, and distorting, is having the net effect of further undermining the credibility of public health messaging, even of the direct messaging from trusted individual physicians, and undermining our capacity to control any of these problems. We're heading into a situation, and there's a new, the Stockholm Institute of Peace just issued one of its major reports, which it does about every five years, looking forward at the worlds and asking, what are we headed into? What kind of a mess? And they're as grim as ever, if not the grimmest ever. And they, they argue we have so many interlaced and complex factors at play in the world today that one synergizes another and another. So climate change may be the reason that we had an animal event that resulted in the virus moving from bats into an intermediary species found in the markets of Wuhan and starting this epidemic. And this epidemic is not being fought properly because all global solidarity has broken down, and in particular along lines that pit China and Russia on one side and the Western alliance on another side that is now further aggravated by war between Ukraine and Russia, which has now put a giant metaphoric and real wall across a huge section of the world and broken down all global solidarity to tackle any major problem. And then you have the global economy and inflation and blah, blah, blah. And I think where we are now, honestly, is that people are so overwhelmed by negative information coming from every single possible direction that they have themselves jumbled it all together. So, you know, you can have a conversation with a total stranger seated next to you in a restaurant 
Uh, you start off talking about how bad the climate is. You end up talking about how bad the disease is. And then, oh, somebody shot somebody on the school playground and then this and then that. And before you know it, you're in a place that's very dark where you see no solutions and you trust no one. We can't conquer public health problems when there is absolutely no trust in any direction. If you don't trust your neighbor, you don't trust government, you don't trust your mayor, you don't trust your doctor, then everybody's left to their own devices to break through this morass of complex negative information, decide what's true, what's lies, and set their own individual path. Well, none of these problems get solved on an individual basis. What do you think, Kavita? Again, I'm not trying to be inflammatorily partisan here, although some people might accuse me of that. But this idea that we have a public health crisis in the United States that is defined broadly by the parameters of right-wing politics. And if you take the, you know, the sort of the comorbidities within this public health crisis, you have gun policy, you have abortion policy, you have COVID policy and vaccine policy, you've got the policies to deny public health coverage to Americans when it's a right in other countries, and it kills people as well. It sounds very partisan, but to me, it also sounds, if we were looking for data, it would back it up. What do you think? No, there is data to back it up, and it's, it sounds partisan because if you look at voting lines on all of those issues, it has been partisan. So I, I think it's entirely appropriate. It's why I made the point about physicians, because a lot of people want to assume, well, if you're in the medical community, and I, I, there are many people, not physicians, that are part of that community, but I'll focus in on doctors, MDs, and DOs. There are many people who assume that we're all like on even footing in terms of everything you just mentioned. You would probably be aghast to hear how many physicians don't support healthcare access for all. They don't think that this is not only not a, is it not a right, but it is something that should not be the role of government, for example. So, and none of it shocks me. I think what frustrates me is that, and Lori touched on it, and I know we want to wrap up. I think that there's so much noise and din that is spurred by the misinformation and also the fact that Democrats, myself included, when we try to come forward with messaging or information to counter it, we try to be evidence-based. Lori prides herself because she looks at the science, reads the scientific articles, and she takes time to do that. But the other side isn't. They're not. And so we have just this din of confusion and that creates a vacuum for leadership because at that point, nobody has responsibility. And that's what we're watching play out. Lori, we've got uh, two minutes here. I take the last word, but I, my guess is, again, if you were to look at U.S. public health outcomes and compare them to the public health outcomes in other countries, you would say these are outliers. And here's, here are the reasons why they're outliers, right? Yes, well, we rank the lowest by every single public health marker you can think of compared to the rest of the industrialized world. And we are beaten out in most key health markers by the tiny little nation of Costa Rica with its infinitesimally small national budget compared to ours. Life expectancy, infant mortality, you go down the list of vaccination rates, everything, and tiny little Costa Rica beats us out. And I think, you know, if I were to set one site for America, it would be, let's be better than Costa Rica. 
I want to, I'll set one site. I want to be on par with Yemen, the country that trails us behind in percentage of guns owned for non-defense military purposes. You mean so. war-torn? Civil war-torn. I, I, but, but, you know, we, we, we rank number one. I want to drop to <laughs> below Yemen. I want to drop to three. That's my goal. That, that would be number great. One. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, um, it's mind boggling on so many levels, but I think this discussion has been particularly helpful because it takes it and it puts it in another context. And I do think there's a lot of data on these things and it's easy to get caught up in the rhetoric. And I think it's really important that you stop, look at the data, tune out Democrats and Republicans. But David, one quick point, because the data does matter and is persuasive when it's examined, there has been a very concerted effort by the Republican Party to eliminate funding for data analysis at the Centers for Disease Control for abortion trends, birth control trends, and gun use trends, and violent homicidal deaths. And so, uh, you know, the data can be a very useful tool, but if it is challenging and presents information contrary to your political message, you seek to destroy the data keepers and the data analyzers. It's a really good point. It is totally whistling past the graveyard. And um, normally at this point in the podcast, we take a break and we uh, say goodbye to the listeners and the general public and say we're going to continue on with our members. And uh, we're not going to do that this week because we're going to continue in the second half of the podcast with a discussion about guns with a former acting assistant attorney general who wrote an important piece in the New York Times just recently of following this uh, shooting. And so we're going to take a legal perspective, just like we've taken a public health perspective here. And I think it's important that you hear both halves. So there, there's not going to be a, a limitation on the ability of people in the public to hear the second half. But if you listen to it and you think, oh, that's good. And it's the kind of thing I don't want to miss, that suggests perhaps in the future, maybe you can become a member. These are important issues, and I think uh, it's important to have discussions like these. So therefore, at this point, let me say thank you to Lori for joining us. It's always great to have you, and hopefully you'll be back again soon. Can I just say that I always look forward to these conversations. I'm a huge Kavita Patel fan and and a huge David Rothkopf fan. And those of you that are not following them on Twitter should, because the gems they drop are really worth reading. Thank you. And I never Love speak I never speak for Kavita, but I'm going to say that Kavita and I are both huge Lori Garrett fans. Yes. We're Founders Club members. Exactly. Hi, and welcome back now to the second half of our podcast. Kavita and I are joined now by Mary McCord. Mary is the executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown University Law Center. And she was acting assistant attorney general for national security from 2016 to 2017. Mary wrote an op-ed in the New York Times just a day or two ago called Uvalde, Buffalo, and the semi-automatic weapons that terrorize us. And I thought this was a useful counterpoint to the discussion we opened up with, which was a public health discussion, because Mary, in your analysis of our national gun pathology. You talk about it in the context both of the consequences of having weapons of, of war 
from a domestic terrorism perspective. And you also talk about the looming prospect of a Supreme Court decision that may make it actually harder for the United States to impose restrictions on guns at a state level. I'd like to take those in in two parts and we can start out by, you know, maybe you can sort of provide the overview of your thesis for those who haven't read the article. Sure. So I wrote the op-ed really um, to draw from the amicus brief. Amicus means friend of the court brief that I had filed last fall in the case currently pending in the U.S. Supreme Court. This is New York City uh, Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. It's a case about New York's New York State's concealed carry permit requirements, but it's the first major Second Amendment case to reach the court since 2008, when the court decided for the first time that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms for self-defense. And I represented dozens of national former national security officials from across the entire U.S. government national security apparatus in filing that brief last fall, really to call the justices' attention to the national security and public safety threat from the easy access, nearly unfettered access to firearms, including semi-automatic assault-style rifles and other high-capacity, high-powered firearms here in the U.S. And it was really to sort of raise the alarm that for years, foreign terrorist organizations like ISIS, like Al-Qaeda, have said in their instructive videos and in their calls for action and in their magazines that they put out that, hey, if you're in the U.S., you can just go get a assault-style rifle so quickly and you know commit terrorist acts in the name of ISIS or al-Qaeda without really any barriers at all. And they have historically done that, but it's not just foreign terrorist organizations. And we know people respond to that. You know, Some of our successful, in terms of being carried out, mass shootings on behalf of or in furtherance of the goals of foreign terrorist organizations have been with semi-automatic assault-style rifles and other firearms, such as the shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, the shootings in San Bernardino, California. And so we haven't seen it stop there either. White supremacists, uh, such as the shooter in Buffalo, such as Dylan Roof at the church in South Carolina in 2015, such as the shooter at the Tree of Life synagogue, they've all used semi-automatic weapons, easily available to commit these uh, terrorist atrocities. And then thirdly, to raise the point that these type of weapons are also used to intimidate or coerce. Anti-government militias and other anti-government extremists often dress in their military kits and their military garb and carry these high-powered rifles as a means of intimidating others in their communities and trying to affect government policy, such as by storming state houses in Lansing, Michigan, Boise, Idaho, and storming the U.S. Capitol on January 6th and trying to prevent the counting of the Electoral College vote. So the idea here is to say, look, and I agree with you uh, in the first half of this podcast that this is also a public health issue, but it's very much a national security issue. And, you know, extremists take advantage of lax gun laws to commit their extremist and ideologically motivated crimes. And it's something the Supreme Court needs to be paying attention to when they consider the scope of any ruling they might issue in the Bruin case. Yeah, but we'll get to the Supreme Court and where that's likely to head us since in the years since 2008, the way the court is constituted has changed somewhat, and that could have an impact here. But Kavita, do you have a question or comment? 
Mary, you have been very thoughtful and I kind of followed some of your work last year, two years ago, discussing exactly this also in the context of extending it into kind of this paramilitia, you know, groups that would show up at COVID protests or protesting school boards, et cetera. I want to ask about your perspective on the state kind of action, because in, in some of the testimony, you make the point that actually 50 states around these paramilitia, being able to have paramilitias, that the states are very clear that they stand against it. I want to focus in on Texas, because in their most recent legislative session, they passed 22 gun bills. They all aimed at easing, not strengthening, as you know, kind of restrictions. And it seems to now be, uh, many people assume that that's what the electorate, you know, that that's what the people want. And all the polling inside of Texas shows quite the opposite. Do you have some way to kind of explain these laws come forward and there's arguments kind of to and from? What is the argument there around kind of concealed carry at the state level and why it is, it feels like there is just very little pushback, um, even when there is populist pushback? Well, that's a complicated political question, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, just to kind of zoom out to first principles, you know, the Supreme Court in 2008, in, in the case I was just referencing, did make clear that the Second Amendment is not a right to carry any weapon whatsoever for any purpose whatsoever, right? But Second Amendment absolutists and those in the Texas legislature and elsewhere, frankly, who are just so beholden to the gun lobby that they, they just can't hardly see rationally. They ignore that language from the Supreme Court and they advocate for really a, a Second Amendment right that has no boundaries. And that is just not the case at all. Justice Scalia wrote that opinion in 2008, and he talked about you know, the fact that throughout our history, there has been various types of gun regulation. And in fact, in the briefs in the Supreme Court in this Bruin case, these briefs go back to the statute of Northampton in the 1300s in England to show that there has always been the regulation of dangerous weapons. And that includes through all of the United States history. So it's really a unique and modern phenomenon to be rolling back all of these gun restrictions. And in fact, the briefings in, in, in the Bruin case really go through, and I don't have it in front of me right now, and I'm sorry that I don't, uh, how, how much more strict gun regulations were until the last 10, 20 years, and how many states have been now flipping the switch on that. And, you know, it's hard not to, it's not, it's hard not to just blame it on pure politics, but that also is hard to explain it completely because as you say, public opinion seems to favor reasonable gun safety measures. And so there's something that's not adding up here about the pressure on politicians. And that kind of, I think, leaves it to money, right? The public opinion, if you are not the ones with the dollars contributing to the campaigns of those in elected office and others who are advocating a more absolutist view, including the NRA, are contributing the dollars, I think we can see there fairly clearly what can be happening. Uh, and it's particularly just, I think, outrageous and atrocious in Texas, which is among states moving toward requiring nothing, nothing. no license, no red, nothing at all to carry a, a weapon at the same time that Texas has seen more mass shootings recently than I think any other state. As I have pointed out several times in different forums, the Russia would not be pouring money into the NRA if they thought it was making us stronger, right? That's not, exactly that's right. not their purpose in, in doing that. In talking to people who watch the Supreme Court closely, 
their expectation is that the ruling that's going to come down in this case, which I suppose is going to come down in the next month or so, right, is likely to make it harder for states to impose restrictions. And that we are likely to have a situation in a country in the middle of mass shooting epidemic and, you know, weeks after this horrific event in Uvalde and last week's horrific event in Buffalo and so on, going in completely the opposite direction of sort of where every public interest of the country seems to be dictating it ought to go. And I'm just wondering what your outlook is. The Bruin case is interesting because it's a very narrow issue there. It's about whether New York's permit requirements that require a showing of of proper cause before you can get a concealed carry license, whether that passes muster under the Second Amendment. And the the way the permitting requirement works is there's not sort of a, a standard criteria for proper cause. It's been developed sort of case by case in different jurisdictions as the authorities, the law enforcement authorities who are authorized to give these permits make individualized decisions. And so, and I say that because I do think that that particular requirement in New York is at risk in front of the Supreme Court, but there are abundant ways the Supreme Court could narrowly rule. If it is having a problem with that particular permanent requirement being too vague, leaving too much discretion to the licensing or the permitting authority, not being individualized enough by jurisdiction, what have you, there are ways it could rule that would be limited strictly to that proper cause requirement without calling into question many other gun safety regulations. And so I think those of us watching it closely, even though we would certainly prefer to see the Supreme Court uphold New York's scheme, if it does not, What we're really hoping, and partly the reason for amicus briefs, et cetera, and advocacy on these points is that the Supreme Court will be very, very careful and cautious and making sure that its ruling does not open the door to continued assaults on on gun safety regulations that are already in existence or, or might be proposed. And, you know, I think that the interesting thing about Second Amendment jurisprudence is it's based not on the same sort of scrutiny that we normally apply to constitutional rights. It's based on a test that's based on text, history, and tradition. And so we look at the text of the Constitution, we look at history, and we look at how it's been applied here in the United States. And that's why things like going back all the way historically for centuries, including to England, for sources of gun regulation is so important when it comes to that test. And one thing, you know, if you look at the 2008 opinion of Justice Scalia, he did make clear that what they what he was ruling in that case about an individual right to bear arms for self-defense didn't call into question restrictions that had a longstanding tradition here in the United States, right? And that had a history. And that included things like barring uh, felons from possessing firearms, barring the mentally ill from possessing firearms, barring firearms from sensitive places. He also reiterated a holding from 1886 that said the Second Amendment does not prevent states from prohibiting private paramilitary organizations to go to Kathita's point. And in fact, Texas does in fact have a law that bars private militia organizations. And Texas is one of the states where that statute has actually been used. It was used in the case in the the 1980s 
brought by a Vietnamese Fishermen's Association against the militia wing of the KKK for injunctive relief against their militia activity directed toward this refugee community. So I don't have fears that the, the, the Supreme Court is going to go so far that it's going to open the door to private militias being protected. But I do, I do think there's a lot of place between a narrow ruling and a broad ruling. And that's what you know, we're, we're looking for. And I think things like Buffalo, Uvalde, Laguna Beach, and so many other mass shootings have got to be front of mind for the justices as they, as they think about the scope of their ruling. Mary, your thoughts on the expansion of background checks, mental health. I mean, this debate quickly folds where people, you know, I think John Cornyn went to the floor or said something akin to, we don't want to restrict the rights of law-abiding citizens. And that gets to some of the heart of what you're talking about in the amicus brief, et cetera. But I think then the kind of complement to that is, okay, so then what is acceptable And there's so much energy spent on background checks and kind of, quote, mental health clearances. Will you speak to, number one, kind of the precedent? If so, is there a precedent for that in other countries or in the 1300s, Mm -hmm. (laughs) some sort of precedent? And then if and also the legality of that. Uh, I don't want to ask you kind of, you know, what you can offer your opinion. Mine is pretty clear that that's just obfuscating what we need to do, which is reduce the number of guns. But um, and what you talk about in your in your New York Times op-ed, but just speak to what ends up being the kind of foils for some of these. These are acceptable policies. These are not because we don't want to restrict rights of law by law-abiding citizens. Yeah, I mean, background checks. You know, obviously they don't aren't going to go to the 1300s. We didn't even have firearms um, in the 1300s, but they I think fit very comfortably within the types of restrictions that the Supreme Court has previously said are okay about who can have a weapon, right? So how do you how do you enforce the restrictions on who can have a weapon if you don't have a background check? So it's it's a natural and almost necessary tool to actually enforce the restrictions that the Supreme Court has said are valid and don't violate the Second Amendment. So this debate over background checks, and let's also throw in there the loopholes that already exist, which are just you know, ridiculous. If you can just avoid anything by going down to a gun show where so many, many weapons are sold, it's a completely, you know, useless type of background check system because it's so readily evaded. But I I think it's worth going into the other issues, which are guns like semi-automatic assault style rifles don't have any legitimate purpose in the civilian community. I was uh, speaking to an individual this morning who is a military veteran who said, you know, talked about the training required to use a gun of that nature. And even in a combat zone, how dangerous it is and how much training is required and how unnecessary. And it is not only unnecessary, but just completely illegitimate to have in any civilian population. And so, and I know many, many responsible gun owners who feel the same, that having a rifle for hunting is one thing, having a handgun for self-protection or protection in the home is one thing, but having a semi-automatic assault rifle is where the line draws. There's no legitimate use for it. The only uses for it are to kill massive numbers of people in a short time period or to intimidate or coerce, like we see by just the wearing of it along with military kits and that projection of authority over others, which is intimidating and coercive and violates other people's constitutional rights because of the fear that it puts in them. So if we can't come up with a legitimate use for it, what are we doing with it? And and it's certainly not the type of weapon that the founders would have been thinking about 
at the time that um, the Second Amendment was, you know, added to our to our Bill of Rights. So I realize that's a hot button issue for a lot of people, but I really question why it should be, because I do think the majority of Americans do not believe there's any place, uh, any legitimate reason to have a weapon with that kind of firepower. And if I could just add another thing to this debate, you know, I've been hearing a lot since the shooting about, you know, arming teachers and having more law enforcement armed or even military around schools. Now, let's not forget, in both Buffalo and in Uvalde, there were armed law enforcement security guard who deployed their weapons and were unsuccessful in, di- in, dis- in disabling the, the shooter and, and Uvalde ultimately so, but not until after so much carnage had been done. That is the, such an unrealistic prospect. You would have to have a teacher strapped with an AR-15 herself all day long for that to even and be trained in it while she's teaching to even have a chance because when the shooter comes to the door, she doesn't have the time to say, oh, excuse me, I need to run to my desk and get my handgun from under lock and key. Could you like hold off on your shooting my students until I get this handgun? So the very idea that teachers could be effective and they shouldn't be asked to do this anyway, could be effective in repelling the type of firepower in the assault in Uvalde is just ridiculous and it's not serious. So what is it that we should be doing that we haven't thought of doing? In other words, every time this happens, we end up back with a discussion and then they say, well, universal background checks or we're going to we should stop large magazines for weapons or we should go back to the assault weapons ban. And all of these things aren't going to go anywhere in the Senate the way it's currently constituted, which is why I think if people care about this, you have to change the way the Senate's constituted and then the Senate likely has to change its rules and filibuster rules in order to get there. But are there other things that could be done? So, for example, sometimes I hear people say, tax guns, tax ammunition, come up with other impediments to ownership. You've studied this. So what what do you think we ought to do? I do think the taxation issue is important when if you look at the tobacco industry, right, you know, a pretty lethal um, industry. And, if, and, 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 you know, in the 70s, I would have never really thought we could be the point where we are today with respect to tobacco. Um, so it, is there clearly ways of getting there? Another idea, frankly, or another way of getting at this is following the playbook of what we saw in the litigation against Remington after Sandy Hook, right? I mean, I saw today an advertisement that the dealer who sold that assault-style rifle to the Uvalde shooter, an ad that that dealer posted that day, which was a child who looked to be about four or five years old with an assault-style rifle in his lap and a caption that said something along the lines of, and I'm sorry, I don't have it right in front of me, start him young and, and you know, he'll, he'll have this for the rest of his life. I mean, that is insane. The type of marketing and advertising to young people of of these type of lethal weapons is something that should be regulated and there should be consequences. And because lethal guns have been on the market for a long time, but our surging gun ownership, particularly when it comes to these high capacity, extremely, extremely dangerous weapons is really off the charts in recent years. And I think as the Sandy Hook case illustrates, Part of that has been a marketing strategy. And so what you're saying there is if the industry promotes a marketing strategy, if corporations promote a marketing strategy and that is involved and it leads to weapons, that they should have liability there. 
that that is one way that you might end up with them doing some kind of self-policing. And part of the point here is that sometimes it's going to be private litigants who have to use novel approaches. And it worked in that case because Congress is not acting and state legislatures are not acting. And so lawyers that are able to think creatively and bring cases that will require the gun industry to answer them, respond to them, be held accountable, hire lawyers, you know, those are important. And it shouldn't be all, you know, about lawyers motivated by, you know, a financial gain. It's a, it's here, you know, some lawyers like myself who work in the public interest do our work actually pro bono to push in areas where there's no accountability. And so I wish we could rely on our elected leaders, but right now we can't do that. The other thing is more reform, and this is getting to a problem that extends way beyond guns, which is the problem I alluded to earlier, which is the money that comes into politicians from particular industries and lobbies. And the rest of the population, even if they have the majority view, if they can't pay, pay to play, they get cut out of it. And, and so real reform, which is not going to happen from the Supreme Court in the way that elections are funded, campaigns are funded, is um, you know, one of the real travesties, in my opinion, has, is the Citizens United case and what it has led to in the United, in the United States. And that's a case that, that really changed um, the rules when it comes to corporate donations to, to campaigns. Mary, if you can actually expand and kind of double down on that, because you, I think lately, as of late, you've been speaking around the rhetoric, again, the, the counter of many of the reform efforts, including the need for not just legal abiding, et cetera. But how I feel like if you could give us one takeaway that we can go and educate people, what is the conversation we should be having? We've got Bruin, we have this complex web of gun violence, as you phrased it, I think, in other interviews. What is it that we should be able to simply explain to people who don't spend as much time on this and are maybe not going to listen to this podcast or listen to it? What is the one thing that we could educate? I think really sort of dispelling the mythology of the Second Amendment is just so critical, right? Mm -hmm. Education. We also need to do this with respect to the First Amendment, by the way. But and, and we see too often people actually saying, I'm exercising my Second Amendment to protect my First Amendment. So these things, it's, it many times do go hand in hand. But this notion that either one of those constitutional rights are absolute is just not the case at all. Second Amendment, as I've indicated, the Supreme Court has told us, including by one of the most conservative justices on the bench in modern history, Justice Scalia has said it doesn't protect the right to carry any weapon whatsoever for any purpose whatsoever. First Amendment is not limitless as well. It doesn't protect violence, incitement to imminent lawless activity, threats, etc. So putting these together, it certainly doesn't protect using weapons either to intimidate or coerce other people, put them in fear, and certainly not to kill them. So I think I really do think there's too much misinformation out in the social media and general media sphere about our constitutional rights. And we need to get a proper understanding of them if we're going to live in any kind of civilized society with the rule of law. It's getting lost in the conversation right now. I think many of us, myself included, are trying to bring out these nuanced points. But you're right, it comes down to misinterpretation of the Second Amendment and also how there's a place to keep the Second Amendment for what it was intended to be, et cetera, but to actually squash what has become an abuse of it. No, no question. And speaking of conservatives, as many people know, Nixon's Supreme Court appointee, Chief Justice Warren Berger, 
1991 said that the Second Amendment has been the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud. I repeat the word fraud on the American public by special interest groups that I've ever seen in my lifetime. So, you know, there, there was a strong, strong sentiment, even within the right very recently, acknowledging what's going on here. Mary, really glad you could join us. Perhaps you can join us again sometime. I suspect we will be discussing this issue for, for, for a long time to come. Your piece was extremely helpful. We will, uh, on our website and in the materials that we put out there on the podcast, we'll put a link so people can go, to your, go to your column. So we've covered this issue un- undoubtedly because this is a chronic disorder of the United States. We will be back to it. It is hard to capture in words the emotional toll this uh, takes. Kavita, you've mentioned that you are close to this. And uh, maybe you'd like to offer a last word before we go. Honestly, David, I think that uh, this combined with what the country has just gone through, you know, the George Floyd anniversary, Buffalo, every single one of us, whether we admit it or not, have basically gone through just sequential episodes of grieving. I mean, we can call it what we want and say that we're stronger than that, but it's not just that there's this tragedy about children and the senselessness of it. It is that on, it's hard to even keep pace. So my one thing is to actually, I just, honestly, it's just to try to be kind and then to, uh, to ourselves and then recollect to take action. That's why Mary's advice has been invaluable. Try to focus the action. And, but I think it's going to take so long for us to heal because we're just getting, people are just kind of throwing blows at us, whether we realize it or not. It takes its toll. Exactly right. And exactly why I wanted to end with words from you, because that's, that's a, it's powerful and I hope everybody takes it to heart. So. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Kavita. Thank you to Lori Garrett for joining us earlier. Thank you for everybody. Uh, Have a good holiday weekend, everybody. We'll be back again next week. And if you get a moment, consider what you heard here today. Bye-bye.